Hi there, Sabres fans, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Sabre Talk podcast. So I'm going to be discussing two games, the Tuesday night victory over the Minnesota Wild in Minnesota, and then the 2-1 to loss on Thursday night tonight uh, to Toronto at, at Key Bank Center. First, there's some new news on the injury front. Uh, Nick Delorier is now out week-to-week with a knee injury. Hudson Fashing is day-to-day with a groin injury, uh, with a groin uh, groin strain. And then Zach Bogosian is now out week-to-week, and they're thinking probably closer to a month. So it'll be a matter of weeks uh, with an MCL sprain. So what I've been harping on on this podcast about the lack of depth in this organization, you're already starting to see it really take a hit because you already were missing Jack Eichel and Evander Kane. That tests your depth to your most important forwards that tend to come close to leading this team in ice time up front every game. Those two players have been out, so it was already tested. And now, you know, I know Nick Delorier isn't really an effective NHL player, and I have advocated for replacements for him up front and ideally he would be at the very least sitting in the press box if not down in the minors I don't think he'd be claimed on waivers if you tried to send him down Uh, but losing him still tests your depth it still forces you to bring somebody up from the minors that otherwise would be down there bolstering your minor league team and that's what we're seeing so Nick Baptiste is now up here Uh, Justin Bailey is now up here with the Sabres filling roles uh, and now Casey Nelson is thrust into the lineup due to the Bogosian injury. So Bogosian left the wild game. He only played about six minutes of of that game. And then this, the Sabres had to play with five defensemen the rest of the way. But now Casey Nelson is thrust up into the lineup. The Sabres haven't called anybody up. They are at home. So it wasn't necessary to have an extra defenseman going on the road where you can just hop on the 90 from Rochester to Buffalo and, you know, an extra defenseman could be up that night if necessary, but they probably will have to call up Justin Falk or Eric Bergdorfer, one of those guys at some point here in order to have a seventh defenseman, have an extra in case somebody was to go down and, uh, you know, in warmups or in, uh, in the pregame skate or, or whenever, uh, during the course of a road trip or a practice, and it's not always feasible to fly somebody out that day in order to, to play in the game. So they probably will have to call from Rochester one of these defensemen, like I said, Falker Bergdorfer, coming up here. Uh, both of these games, I think, fall in line with what we expected from this team. You know, we expected in in offensive improvement. We expected them to probably be able to score a bit more up front, uh, you know, due to Jack Eichel, Sam Reinhardt getting a year older. Of course, Eichel's out now. Uh, Bringing Kyle Oposo, you just expected them to be able to score a bit more, but you weren't really expecting this team to be high-flying and to to put up a whole lot of goals just because of the style they play. And it's self-imposed primarily due to being weak on the back end and this is a continuation from last year it's a similar decor you basically replaced Mark Pasek with Dmitry Kulikov everybody else coming back is the same Jake McCabe's a year older so you expected him 
hopefully to take a step forward. But of course, Josh Georges is a year older, so you're probably expecting him to take a step back. So it's not a drastically different defensive core. So they have to play a similar style to what they did last year in order to stay in games. And what did they do? They dumped and chased a whole lot, and they basically tried to keep games two to one, three to two, one to nothing. They tried to keep games low scoring, and that's what they've tried to do thus far. And then losing Eichel and Kane only exacerbated that kind of game plan because you you lose a lot of your offensive firepower when you lose your eventual superstar player in Jack Eichel and uh, you also lose another one of your higher level forwards in Evander Kane you know another 20 goal, another 20 goal guy and those players aren't easy to get in the NHL uh, so Minnesota we saw a pretty ugly game the Sabres were able to come out of it with the victory, uh, however, it wasn't it wasn't a fun game to watch, and that's the way that the Sabers want to play. That's really the way they have to play in order to keep their heads above water, and in order to uh, <clears throat> in order to make it to when Eichel comes back and still be in this playoff race. As unfortunate as it is, as difficult as it can be to get through those games, that's how they want to play. Uh, so Johan Larson got rewarded with a goal. O'Reilly also came through with a goal in that game. Uh, but these were these are two pretty non-entertaining teams. Two fairly boring teams. Uh, th- the Sabres should be more exciting with the talent they have. Obviously missing Eichel and Kane. They're not going to be as exciting as they otherwise would be. But the style that the Sabres play isn't really exciting to watch on most nights. And when you match them up against the Wild, who are pretty similar, you know, they don't have a ton of firepower. They're not they're not playing an up and down game. They are scoring more this year. I think that's part of the the Boudreaux influence. He is a very good coach, and I liked that hire by them. But it's still it's hard to be exciting without having the horses really to be exciting and if you look at the wild top to bottom they lack that high level number one center that I think you need to win a Stanley Cup at the NHL level so you saw that in this game it was a relatively even matched game Um, I think the wild may even have outplayed the Sabres a bit Uh, if just by watching the game and not seeing when the goals went in I would have probably thought that the wild squeaked squeaked out a win there Two to one, or you know, one to nothing, three to two. That the that the Wild would have squeezed out a one goal victory, but the Sabers managed to do it, and that's how a lot of games are in the NHL over an eighty-two game season. Uh, you're bound to have these games where they really could go either way, and that's what this one was. The big storyline coming out of it was losing Bogosian, and like I said before, now you're testing already thin defensive depth in this organization and now you really have to rely on Casey Nelson there really isn't another option out there and I haven't been inspired by what I've seen from him thus far through preseason really through the offseason I still think he will be an adequate third pairing defenseman down the line but I don't think he's there yet and really I the blame is on Tim Murray that now we're in this position where we have to rely on Casey Nelson to play this kind of role because there, there aren't other options in the organization. Justin Falk, you know, he's a replacement-level NHL player. He doesn't belong in the NHL either. Of course, you could give him a shot, but 
you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get anything special out of him or out of an Eric Bergdorfer. So ideally you would have had other interesting players that could have been given a shot, say if, if Casey Nelson continues to struggle like he ended up doing in the Toronto game. I thought he really struggled and he continued what I've seen up to this point, which is that I think he's not quite there yet in terms of being up to speed with the NHL game. And that takes time. You know, just because a guy has been in college for four years doesn't mean he's necessarily ready to step right into the NHL and play a role. And I know that he came in last year after he signed, and it I was cautiously optimistic about him, and I think a lot of people were. He looked like, okay, he belongs, he can move the puck a bit, he can get his shot through, he can skate. Okay, we may have something here. You know, maybe not a special prospect, but we have an NHL defenseman here. But a player's progression isn't linear. And a lot of times it's not about, okay, how do they play the first their first 15 to 20 games in the NHL? It's how do they do that over the long term? And that's where guys struggle because you can get by kind of on emotion and uh, coming in so hyped. Okay, I'm in the NHL now. I'm ultra-focused. You can look good playing that way for a while. And you see it all the time where players get called up and they look like they're going to set the world on fire and this is this is the next big thing. But it rarely works out that way because over an 82-game season, you can't be ultra-focused like that. It can't be all adrenaline-based. You've got to figure out things. You've got to be so comfortable at the NHL level because you're completely ready to be there. You've almost got to be able to play without thinking. And I mean, you know, play naturally. And I think that's where he's struggling now. He's past that point where he's playing on adrenaline and where his adrenaline causes him to be so ultra-focused that he looks he continues to look adequate and competent. He's past that point. And I think now you're seeing him start to struggle. And then you start overthinking when you start struggling. And I think we're going to keep seeing this with him. And you hope that he figures it out. And I think he will over time. You know, I don't think all hope is lost on him. But it would be great if he'd be able to send him down to Rochester. Like, okay, go down. You can figure it out at a slightly slower pace. You'll be getting big minutes down there in all situations. There's just less pressure on you down there. You're not trying to fill a role up here on an NHL team where they're really expected to make the playoffs or to be right in that playoff race. That's a lot of pressure for for a younger guy, and not everybody's ready for it. There's nothing wrong with that. But Tim Murray's put this organization in the place where now they have to rely on Casey Nelson. And it's going to ride on him how – that third pairing does. Now, at least we saw in the uh, in the Toronto game, they switched the pairings, and I think the pairings now look as good as you could expect them to be with who they have at, at the least. So you have uh, Kulikov now with Ristolainen, and that's your big minute pairing that you're throwing out there in all situations. And then Jake McCabe and Cody Franson are also being leaned on. They they both read about 20 minutes. Uh, uh, 20 minutes of ice time during the Toronto game. And then Georges and Nelson were the protected third pairing. And that makes sense, having the vet and the rookie, lefty, righty together. You have lefties and righties together down the uh, down the depth chart. And that makes far more sense than having uh, Georges with 
Ristolainen, and then, you know, having Kulikov with Nelson, or, you know, however else you want to do it, Kulikov with Franson, and then have McCabe with Nelson. I think this way, Cody Franson, I, I hate him as a number four defenseman. I don't want him to be a number four defenseman, but with what they've got, he is their fourth best defenseman right now. And I know he's getting a ton of flack from Sabres fans. I know he's slow. I know he's one of the slowest players in the league. But this is the position that they're in. When everybody's healthy, you can do a lot worse than having Cody Franson as your number five or number six defenseman, which is the position the Sabres were in coming into this year. But with the way it is now, I think that's what makes the most sense. It makes far more sense to have Franson next to McCabe rather than uh, Casey Nelson. So I was at least encouraged that Dan Bilesma made that switch. And I think that moving forward with these defensemen while Bogosian's hurt, that's what I that's what I want to continue to see. Uh, beyond that, up front, I think Justin Bailey, Nick Baptiste, I talked about them coming up to fill voids left by uh, left by Hudson Fashion getting hurt and by Nick Delorier getting hurt. And I think they've been nice additions. They had speed. They've got a little bit of scoring ability. And I could see them being able to hold on to regular spots moving forward. Maybe not post-Eichel, uh, post-Eichel coming back. And I don't know what the plans are for Hudson Fashing. But I think up front you need that speed. And I think rather than throw Nick Delorier back in the lineup when he's ready, I'd much rather have a competent player up here. And I like Nick Delorier. I like kind of the heart that he's brought. Seems like a good guy, but he's not. He doesn't bring anything to the table that justifies him being in an NHL lineup every night. Maybe he can be somebody that you have in the press box most nights. Maybe dress for occasions where there may be a fight that breaks out because he's an okay fighter. But beyond that, his line consistently gets pummeled. If if you look at the advanced statistics, line consistently gets pummeled by the opposition while he's out there. And for some reason, Dan Bilesma seemed to fall in love with him last year, had him playing with Ryan O'Reilly. I know his team's winger depth was horrendous, but he had him playing high up in the lineup for a decent portion of the year, far more of the, far more of the year than he should have been. So I hope they've learned from that experiment, have been able to look at, okay, the lines that Nick Delorier plays on perform far worse than they would with just about anybody else on the roster in that position. So we should have Nick Baptiste in that spot or Justin Bailey in that spot. New news coming out. So I was talking about uh, Kane and Eichel being out. Evander Kane very well may be back as early as next week. So that will change the dynamics of the lines when he does come back. And I think it gives Bilesma far more options to work with. So I think your first instinct would be that Evander Kane would step into the Ryan O'Reilly, Kyle Oposo line, and you would move Matt Molson down the lineup, that Kane would would replace Molson on that line. And that very well may be what happens, allow Molson to kind of continue to play a specialty, power play role, play further down, uh, play fewer even strength minutes, because he's looked far better at even strength this year than he has or than he did last year, but at the same time, it's not like he's a world beater at even strength either. So that would be the easiest move to make, 
and that very well could be what Biles was thinking. If it was my decision to make, I would probably want to consider moving Gergensen's down the lap. So I'm not touching the Felino, Larson, Giantala, and I think they're going to stay together regardless. Um, but I think moving Gergensen's down, say that he can play with Justin Bailey, Nick Baptiste, and give them give them decent minutes. Maybe give them more minutes than a typical fourth line would get because that's two of your better winger prospects in the organization and Zemgis Gergensen's, who is a competent top, top nine forward. And I've discussed how I don't think he's going to live up to expectations that people have had for him. But I think regardless of whether or not he progresses at all from where he is now, he's still a competent top nine NHL forward. So that wouldn't be your typical fourth line and I'd want to see them get more minutes than you would typically expect your fourth line to get uh, but then moving Gergensen down I would like to see Sam Reinhart moved over to center and then potentially insert Evander Kane onto that line because I think my favorite combination of players that Evander Kane has played next to I think has been next to Sam Reinhart I think they play together well I have liked Kane next to O'Reilly as well. Um, I haven't liked the Kane-Eichel combination necessarily. But I think that that line, so if you have Ennis, Reinhardt, and Kane, I think that line complements, each of them complements the other two very well. You have Kane who brings the size, the speed, the forechecking ability, uh, the willingness to shoot. And you have Reinhardt, who is effective in front of the net, great passer, very cerebral. And then Ennis, who also brings some speed to the table, some playmaking creativity to the table. Uh, I I just I, I like those three together, and I think that that could be a great secondary scoring line. And then you hope that Matt Molson continues to look competent at even strength and that the great play of Ryan O'Reilly and Kyle Poso can carry – Matt Molson and continue to have him be productive. I think that's what I'd like to see when Kane comes back. And of course that pushes Derek Grant out of the top 12 and whether you want to keep him around as the 13th forward or uh, send him down to Rochester, either way, it depends on who else has come back. If, if Nick Delorier is back and healthy, if Hudson Fashing is back and healthy, it depends on what else is going on. But I think that's what I'd like to see from the top 12 forwards when Kane comes back, assuming that Fashing isn't ready, because I think it looks like they think that Fashing is ahead of Baptiste and Bailey. That kind of the pecking order now in terms of those Rochester wingers is Fashing, Baptiste, and then Bailey. And then, you know, Alex Nylander is further down uh further down the line. They haven't had to call anybody else up yet, so I'm not sure exactly how the pecking order would go beyond that. You know, they would probably look at Cole Schneider or Cal O'Reilly uh, before Nylander just because of just because of their experience and they can play wing or center. But hopefully, we don't have to have to know that anytime soon because that would mean another injury or two up front to this unit that really can't afford it. And then Rochester can't afford to lose anybody else either. Uh, but that's kind of what I'm thinking right now in terms of lines when Evander Kane comes back uh, so now to discuss the Toronto game so I already discussed the Minnesota game came out with a 2-1 victory it was nice to be able to get back at a team that had beat them 4 nothing just a few games ago 
in Buffalo and be able to go into uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul and be able to, to beat the Wild on their home ice, even though it was an ugly game and it wasn't a victory that you walked away from feeling great about. But you're going to have a lot of that over the course of a year, and playoff teams win a lot of those types of games. Not saying this is a playoff team, but those are the types of ugly games you have to win if you if you do want to make the playoffs. So the Toronto game, I don't think it was a toss-up in, ter- in terms of who who outplayed who. It was the Sabres taking it to the Leafs. Mitch Marner managed to get two goals fairly early um, in the first. He scored in the first and then early in the second period. But Toronto was really back on their heels for a majority of the game. And this was the first game that I've seen of theirs where their goaltending managed to steal a game for them. You know, typically it's been a lot of up and down. They've got great forwards up front. Uh, William Nylander's been fantastic so far. Obviously, you know what you have in Austin Matthews. You have another stud center up front. Mitch Marner has been very good. You know, they have a they have a high flying offense. They have a lot a lot of skill. And and they can score. Uh, they do struggle on the back end and they've struggled in net thus far. Frederick Anderson has not been a good pickup for them. I thought that was one hiccup in their rebuild to this point. I didn't like that move to have to trade a first round pick and then to have to to lock him up to a five year, twenty five million dollar contract. I thought that was a ridiculous move to be honest when they've made so many great moves and I've really liked their rebuild as much as that pains me to say because I love being able to see the Leafs wallow in their mediocrity and to wallow in poor personnel moves but they they're very well run now and I think their rebuild has gone extremely well they're about a year behind where the Sabres are and they're still in the process of cashing in on a lot of these assets that they've built up in, in all these trades, you know, all these tr- trading away uh, impending unrestricted free agents, trading away veterans, kind of tearing it down and accumulating assets. Now they're figuring out, okay, what can we do with those assets to turn it into NHL talent? And they still have a lot to work with. So it's far from a, fin- uh, far from a finished product there. And you know that they're going to make a run at another defenseman or two, whether they're dangling some of their talented forwards up front along with draft picks or how you know however they're planning to do it and they're going to have probably another high draft pick coming up this year so that's a that's been a well-run team but Frederick Anderson has been a disappointment thus far you thought that they're what they thought at least was that Frederick, Frederick Anderson can come in he can cover for our young defense and with all this talent we have up front, we can score, hopefully be good enough defensively where we've got a shot to contend for a playoff spot. And obviously you're coached by Mike Babcock, and he did a great job of maximizing what he had there last year. And he's been great at that throughout his whole career. That's why they paid him so much money to come there. Tonight, they did not look great. They did not look good up front. The Sabres were able to stymie them consistently coming through the neutral zone. They were able to keep their young guns in check. Of course, Marner had the two goals. But really, in terms of throughout the entire night, you weren't scared of Austin Matthews every time he touched the puck. You weren't scared of William Nylander every time he touched the puck. And besides Marner's two goals, you weren't scared of him every time he touched the puck, which, having watched them earlier in the year, other teams have been. So the Sabres did a good job of being able to stymie their greatest strength, which is 
getting their players flying down the ice, come entering the zone with speed and being able to create chances, being able to create odd man rushes, and you know being able to do a lot off the rush. That's what they're great at. But they didn't do a ton of that versus the Sabres. And the Sabres were able to take the forecheck to the Leafs. So they, were, they were able to attack that defense. That defense, like I said, is young. They're relying on a lot of young players back there. They have one great defenseman in Morgan Riley and then a lot of question marks after that. And it's similar to the Sabres defense. The Sabres defense is better when healthy, but it's similar in that you have Rasmus Ristolainen and then kind of a lot of question marks. You know, you don't have another top-pairing defenseman necessarily. You could probably compare Dmitry Kulikov about to, to Jake Gardner. They're, they're pretty similar in terms of being good t- – two three hybrids probably closer to number three defenseman on a good team on a very good team and then a lot of tweener types after that uh both teams are similar in that regard a lot of promise but you don't necessarily know what you're getting from them every night but what the sabers were able to do was to attack their weakness which is the back end and that's getting in on the forecheck and putting pressure on those defensemen and the line that was really able to do that best was the Felino larsen gianta line. That line really stuck out. I thought Marcus Felino, for the most part, had a fantastic game. He did have a he did make a pretty big mistake on the second goal where he tried to stick handle between his legs out in front, tried to make a fancy play rather than just smacking the puck to the corner, which is what you should do when you get the puck with your back turned in front of your own net. And it ended up resulting in Mitch Marner scoring. Mitch Marner being able to take advantage and and pot a goal. But besides that, I thought he he looked very good. He was skating hard. He was hitting. I think the Leafs started to be hesitant and started to throw the puck away because they knew that the Sabres were going to be coming in on the forecheck. And you had Ristolainen in attack mode, being willing to pinch, being willing to come up, make somebody pay. Uh, being willing to carry the puck. And I think those are all important things. And when this team's playing at its best, I think that's part of its identity. I think they do have speed. I've talked about this team being slow, but they do have some speed and they do have forecheck ability. I think this line that I'm talking about, the Flino Larson Gianta line, that's what they do best. They get in on the attack and they're great at maintaining possession. Um, and a big part of that is being able to put pressure on defensemen in order to, because they have a lot of defensive zone starts. And so to be able to now bring possession up the ice and be able to keep it in the offensive zone, that's what they need to do. And then when you have a Vander Kane back, that's what he does best. So you hopefully have him being the catalyst on another line of being able to get in on the forecheck, being able to attack opposing defenses. And then hopefully you have a defense that you can put into attack mode a little bit because you do have players that are able to play that way. Ristolainen is. I think Jake McCabe is becoming very good at doing that, being able to pick his spots and being aggressive at the right times. I think Kulikov, depending on who he's playing with, if he's playing with with Ristolainen, he's probably not going to be in attack mode much. But if he's playing on a different pairing... Maybe he's willing to play that way. We see that when Bogosian's on, he's able to attack and be aggressive. So I think this can be an aggressive defense as well that can complement and attack uh, an aggressive forward core. And I think when you do lack skill the way that the Sabres still do up front, okay, they do have high-level players with a lot of skill. 
and I think compared to what we as Sabres fans are used to, basically since 2006-2007 when we saw that President's Trophy team that was able to run over everybody during the regular season and score a ton of goals, we haven't really seen as much that much high-level skill on one roster up until this year because now you do have Jack Eichel, Sam Reinhart, Kyle Oposo, Ryan O'Reilly. So you do have you do have skill here, but it's not there up and down the roster. And I think that's why the Alex Nylander pick did make a lot of sense and continues to look like the right move in my opinion. You know, though a lot of people are criticizing it because Mikhail Sergachev did look good during the preseason. I liked him a lot too. I wouldn't have had a problem with him being the pick. And then Jacob Chikrin made the Coyotes, and they're keeping him there, you know, at least for the time being, but they're keeping him there past that nine-game threshold. So if they were to send him back, he would have already had a year of his contract burned. So they probably won't do that. It, it has happened. The Sabres did it with Mikhail Grigorenko, and it's it certainly happened in the past, but that pick is looking good for the Coyotes, and that was another player that a lot of people had pegged to the Sabres. It was kind of a decision between those three once they came up in, in in this year's draft. But I think the Nylander pick made a lot of sense because this team doesn't have skill. It doesn't have skill to the point that you would expect the Stanley Cup team to have. And you, you want skill up and down the roster. I know the maxim is defense wins championships, defense wins championships, but you need skill too. And I think uh, re- recent Stanley Cup champions have shown that. So I liked that pick for that reason. And hopefully when this team is healthy and you're able to add an Alex Nylander to the picture, they're not, there aren't going to be so many two-to-one games. And you know, you're not going to have to necessarily play the way that they have. And you're not going to have as many games like tonight where they had 40-plus shots on goal but we're only able to generate one goal. And of course, I know that Frederick Anderson played very well, but the Sabres had chances that they just didn't capitalize on. And that's been a recurrent theme over the last couple years just because of the makeup of this forward core. When you're a little bit short on skill, you're not going to be able to convert. And I was talking about Toronto last year and Mike Babcock being able to maximize what he got out of that team. That team was pretty good possession-wise. However, they didn't have the skill to be able to convert a lot of that possession into goals. And ultimately that's what skill does. You know, you can you can manage to be a decent possession team without necessarily having a ton of skill. But if you want to be able to score and you want to be able to score enough to be a good team overall, you need to be able to convert that possession into goals. I think that's still where the Sabres are struggling and where hopefully a guy like Nylander can develop into the additional skill that they need. And that's also why it's important for Tyler Ennis to be able to keep up his good play because his skill is important to being able to bolster this this group up front. Um, beyond that, I'd like to talk about Robin Leonard a little bit. I thought he's had, a, he's had a good couple games. I was critical of him on my prior podcast, which was before the, the Minnesota game. I think he's doing a better job of controlling rebounds. I still think that's going to be a weakness of his moving forward. 
and I know that was a weakness of his back in his Ottawa days as well. So I don't think that's necessarily going away. He's still big and athletic, and he's going to be able to stop the first shot the vast majority of the time. Of course, I know most NHL goaltenders are able to. If you're not able to do that, you're probably not in the league. Uh, but I thought he's he's done a better job of being in control and at least not getting out of position on that first save and also not directing those rebounds right to prime scoring areas. That's where I was very critical of him to start the year. I thought, yes, he's making the first stop, but he's directing these shots right out in front a lot of the time. And I think he's doing a better job of being able to direct them into lower percentage scoring areas because obviously it's not feasible to be able to cover up the first shot every time. No goaltender can do that, and I'm not expecting that out of Robin Leonard. Even though the Sabres gave up a first-round pick for him, you can't expect perfection. But he needs to be able to realize his weaknesses and how do I make this weakness as you know the least detrimental to me as possible. And yes, he's going to have a lot of shots bounce off of him, but how can he direct them to areas where, you know, where they're not going to be in prime scoring scoring uh, areas? And I think he's done a good job of that the last couple games. And I think it has shown uh, he's kept his team in the game. He hasn't really given up bad goals. And that's really all you can hope for. You know, I'm never going to be happy with the price they paid for him, even if he becomes a high-level goaltender I still don't think he's going to be but even if even if he he becomes a high level goaltender I'm still not going to like the price they paid because I don't think it was good market value at the time and that's why I'm going to continue to harp on that trade as a mistake by Murray I'm not an ends justify the means type of person where I think we should only evaluate the trade after the fact I think you've got to look at what the market was like at the time And if things happen to break right for you and it looks good at the end of the day due to some kind of unforeseen circumstances, I don't think that should factor into the trade. Just like if some things go wrong for you and there's bad luck, it doesn't mean we should now necessarily call that a bad move if it looked like a good move at the time. If you can go back and explain, yeah, the rationale for this was very sound, just this bad luck happened to happen and now this is what happened. So I'm never going to like that, like that move by Murray, but Leonard has turned it around, I think, after a slow start to the season. I think he's starting to figure it out, and I talked about his streakiness in my prior podcast, and I think we're going to continue to see that from him. You're going to see him get into the zone, be able to have very good stretches of play, and then some stretches of play where you wonder, is this guy, can he be the guy? And I haven't seen any indication yet that he's getting over that streakiness, he's growing out of that streakiness, and that just may be the player that he is. He still is young by goalie terms. He's 25, uh, so there is still time for him. I'm, I'm not saying this is what he is, and I think we can still see him change and continue to grow and develop. So I don't, I don't want anybody to construe this as otherwise. However, uh, there is a large enough sample size for him at the NHL level now where I don't think he's going to change dramatically from where he is now. Beyond Leonard, I did want to discuss just Mike Babcock coached teams and all the obstruction and interference that you see from that team. I think a lot of teams do it. You can get away with it at the NHL level. But I think that's contributing hugely to 
the slowdown in play. I mean, obstruction and interference, I think it it hurts the flow of play. And ideally, I'd like to see the NHL do something about it. I'd like to see penalties start being called. But multiple times today, I yelled at my screen, you know, that's interference. You can't step in front of forwards the way that, that these Toronto defensemen do. Their forwards do it too. I mean, that's what their breakout is a lot of times is just setting picks on the opposing team. And I don't want to act like Toronto's the only team that does it or that Mike Babcock is the only coach that does this, that has a system like this. But, you know, you can compare it to what the what the New England Patriots do with Julian Edelman and those guys setting pick plays, their receivers setting pick plays, and they push the limits of what they can do and get away with, which I understand. I'm not criticizing the teams necessarily for doing that because it's up to the officials and to the leagues to allow it to happen. But I think the NHL should take a long look at this and you know, take a long look at the reintroduction, the slow reintroduction of interference and obstruction into the game when they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we increase scoring? You know, how do we ramp up the flow of the game? How do we keep young fans interested? I think this is a big part of it. And they always want to look at, and I think this is human, kind of human instinct to look at, okay, what can we do at the goal level in order to increase goals? So they look at, okay, can we decrease the size of goaltender equipment? Should we increase the size of the goals? And of course, those are the first things you're going to think of Okay, yeah, there's not enough scoring. That means we need to make what's blocking the goal smaller. That means make the goalies smaller and and or make the goals bigger. But there's a lot more to it than that. And you saw coming out of the lockout when scoring was up, when I think fan excitement was higher, you saw the flow of play be much more open and and fast. It's, a, it's of course, a very fast sport still. I don't want to act like... It's a slow sport because everybody can skate now. You're slowly seeing those slow pylon type players being weeded out of the game. And there are very few of those types left. And that's why somebody like Cody Franson looks like such an anomaly now where he would have been commonplace just 10 years ago, players of his ilk. But now skating is so important that everybody has to be able to do it. Uh, So I don't want to act like the sport itself is slow. But when you allow obstruction and interference to creep its way into the game it does slow down the game and it impedes being able to being able to pressure defensemen being able to get odd man rushes I think that's what it harms the most and I think that's a big part of excitement for fans is seeing back and forth being able to see crisp breakouts and I think when you're picking opposing players it's it's not crisp it's not free-flowing and you want to be able to see Defensemen getting their pockets picked. You want to be able to see odd man rushes coming back the other way. I think that's an important part of it too. And when you have four checkers getting picked, when you have forwards getting slowed down, that's not going to happen. So I would like to see the NHL look into this and maybe start calling penalties on this because it's really starting to push the limits of what's acceptable. You know, I played hockey for a long time, so I understand the value, especially as a defenseman, of being able to use your body and being able to block in opposing forward, you know, being able to give your partner an extra split second of time because of the way that you happen to turn around and, you know, maybe force a forward to go around you rather than being able to take a a straight line to your partner. I understand that. That's always going to be a part of the game. But 
there's a certain limit, I think, to where that's acceptable. And I think the league is now starting to push those limits. And I think Mike Babcock coach teams have always pushed those limits. So it'll be interesting to see if anything comes out of that. I don't know if it will. I think it's become so ingrained for a lot of teams that probably the NHL won't look to make any changes. And they may not even realize a change in the product due to it. But that was one of the biggest things I came out of the game with, and I said multiple times. And I saw some national people watching this game. Uh, John Butchigross is the one that comes to my mind, but he said the same thing. Have you know, have the Leafs been obstructing this way the entire game? He said something like that. I, I just started watching, and that's the first thing he noticed. So other people are, are noticing this too. I don't think this is me watching it and – being biased because of because I don't like the Leafs or because I'm a Sabres fan, uh, and I think I've I've seen this because I've watched a lot of the Red Wings. That's my wife's team, so I've watched a lot of the Red Wings over the years, and they did the same thing. They continue continue to do the same thing with Jeff Blashill, and I comment on it all the time. Watching them, the Leafs do the same thing, and I think it's a, a Babcock influence, and I would probably do the same thing if I was him. If you can get away with it, if it's effective, if your players are good at it and they're used to doing it, I think it can give you an advantage. So I don't blame him or the other teams that that do it a lot for you know, for having that be a part of their breakouts and for having that be a part of just their general, you know, how do we get the puck from point A to point B? But I would like the league to take a look into it. There are a lot of ways to be able to increase scoring and increase the flow of the game. The, really the, the free-flowing of the game. And I think this is one of them. Uh, beyond that, I don't think I have too much to delve into on these two games. Uh, the Sabres next are playing the 7-3 and three Ottawa Senators, far far outdoing my expectations, uh, far exceeding them. And they're playing them in Ottawa on Saturday at 7 o'clock Eastern time. So that should be an interesting matchup. I I guess I really doubted the Senators coming into the year. And, of course, 10 games isn't a huge sample size. It is an eighth of the way through the season, though. So you should take some stock into their performance to date. And they do have some high-level players. Looks like Kyle Turris is back to his old self after really struggling last year. Uh, Eric Carlson, obviously very high-level player. Bobby Ryan, high-level player. Uh, Derek Broussard seemed to be a nice addition there. Um, I still don't love that team. I don't love them on the back end. Uh, up front, you know, Broussard was a nice addition, but they still don't have that stud number one center that I think you need to win consistently at the NHL level. Not that you can't make the playoffs without one, but I don't think they can keep up close to this kind of pace the rest of the year without having that type of high-level player. This will be a good matchup. I expect Robin Leonard to be in net again. It doesn't sound like there's any new injury news coming out of the Leafs game, so probably we'll see the same lines and same pairings unless somebody returns. Hudson Fashing could presumably return. Uh, it doesn't sound like Nick Delorier or Zach Bogosian will be. You know, Bogosian is out. They're saying closer to a month, so there's no way he will. So we'll probably see very similar forward lines and defensive pairings. I think after having a good performance against the Leafs, I wouldn't see any reason to switch those up. So looking forward to another divisional matchup. It's always fun playing these teams that the Sabres have a long history against. Uh, 
So looking forward to talking to you, talking to you hopefully soon after that game. Have a great Friday.